Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, and I'm John Henley. So, fasten your seatbelts, here we go. Almost exactly a year, 362 days in fact to be precise, after Britain voted to leave the European Union on June the 23rd, 2016, the Article 50 divorce talks are finally about to get underway in Brussels. Needless to say, matters have not been helped, as far as Britain's position is concerned, by the results of last week's election, which saw Theresa May unexpectedly lose her majority and try to cling on in government with the help of Northern Ireland's ultra-conservative DUP party. Now that's something that could well have an impact on the Brexit talks, as of course could the weakened position of the Prime Minister generally within her own party after a shockingly bad campaign, the emergence of a block of Scottish Conservative MPs who are broadly more Remain uh, than Leave, and of course the buoyancy of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party who had a barnstorming election and is now on something of a high. Not, of course, that that means that the Labour Party's position on Brexit is any clearer. And the Tories' stance certainly isn't. We have some MPs and ministers insisting that nothing's changed. A hard Brexit outside the single market and the customs union remains the goal. Other senior figures, like the Chancellor Philip Hammond, are pushing for a softer, jobs-first Brexit. And yet others, including former Prime Minister John Major, want a cross-party commission hammer out a national consensus on the kind of Brexit Britain really wants. And waiting in the wings, of course, are a bunch of 70 or 80 hardliner pro-Brexit MPs who really won't give an inch, especially on immigration. In short, what's clear now is that nothing's clear. There's no particular kind of Brexit, hard or soft or anything in between, that commands a majority in the House of Commons. No one has the first idea what the plan is. And as things stand, Britain appears to be a country without a government, a government without a Brexit strategy, and Brexit negotiators without objectives. All the while, of course, the EU27 are ready and waiting. The Brexit clock that started when the Prime Minister triggered Article 50 on March the 29th is ticking, and all things being equal, it will stop ticking on March the 29th, 2019, in two years' time, minus, of course, the seven weeks we've just wasted on the election. So, joining me to try and make some kind of sense of this unholy mess are Dan Roberts, The Guardian's Brexit policy editor, and our Brussels correspondent, Jennifer Rankin. In a slightly longer edition of Brexit Means Than Usual, we're going to be looking at how the Article 50 talks will work, where the main stumbling blocks may lie, and what impact Britain's domestic political mess may have on the whole process.
So, Jennifer, can I start with you? Um, I mean, I suppose the one saving grace here is that the Article 50 talks that are due to start on Monday are at least about very clearly defined issues, aren't they? So we can kind of kick the overall Brexit strategy question into the long grass, to a certain extent at least. But can we look first of all at the nuts and the bolts of the talks? Who's going to meet who, where, for, for how long? And, and also, how important will this whole issue of sequencing be? Is, is Europe really determined to stick to the sort of no trade talks before Article 50 progress position? So, um, so when we come to the nuts and bolts, um, for the EU side, the chief negotiator is Michel Barnier. He's a, a former EU commissioner, former French foreign minister, very experienced and very... Uh, uh, very in command of his brief, and he will be facing David Davis, uh, the Brexit secretary, so that uh, they will be sitting down opposite each other for the first time on Monday to open these Brexit talks with, uh, with their teams beside them. And what we're expecting is that the talks will run on, a, on a, a cycle of one month where there will be one week of very intensive uh, negotiations between the British and, the, and Michel Barnier and his team, and then they will they will break away, and they will in the in the intervening weeks they will be exchanging papers. The EU will be reporting back to its member states on positions, and they will be preparing for the next round. And uh, and as for the sequencing, that's a it's a very important uh, point for the EU because they've made clear right from the beginning that the talks have a certain order. First comes the divorce, and only then can you talk about a new relationship, so any new trade uh, deal. So for the EU, that means starting with uh, sorting out citizens' rights, which is also something the British government is is very uh, keen to, to finalise soon. Um, but the EU also wants to talk about the money, the Brexit bill, and and resolving the question of the Irish border. Now, until recently, before the election, David Davis was, was promising to fight this order. He really wanted to talk about trade much sooner, and he, he said there would be the row of the summer about this. But in fact, it does now seem that the EU sequence um, might rather end up suiting the UK after all, given the disarray in, its, uh, in the government, the fact that there is no clear um, strategy for Brexit, and Theresa May has no mandate now for her hard Brexit. So it, it, in the end, it could prove that the, the, the sequencing realm may not even materialise. Dan, is that what you're hearing from, from the London end? It is. For once, we're hearing relatively the same message coming out of Whitehall. I think it's really telling, though, that basically before these things have already started, the UK has conceded on at least three or four quite big procedural questions. The EU has been able to determine who sits around the table. The Brits, first of all, wanted technical discussions, as Jennifer reported the other day. But actually, the Brits had to concede that, they're, that, that, that they would have to bring a minister along to show they were serious. Um, the Brits also wanted, the, as you said, to, to start with trade. They've had to concede on that. They were also reluctant to sort of pin down to having um, David Davis start on Monday because it would get ahead of the Queen's speech. They've had to basically bow to that because they didn't want to be seen to be um, trying to postpone things. So it really does show the balance of power here that despite mm. all the bluster from the British side, they've already conceded before on at least three big issues before we start. Mm. Yeah, that is that is, that is quite telling. Um, OK, now let's look at the issues then in, in turn. Um, Jennifer, uh, the first priority, as you said, for, for both sides, for, for the EU27 and for, and for the British government, is, um, the, is citizens' rights, which is the rights under EU law of those 3.5 million EU citizens who are living in the UK and the 1.2 British nationals on the continent. 
Now, you know, we say this is, of course, the top priority, but that's being something being the top priority is not the same as, as, you know, the two sides being able to agree on the actual resolution of these problems. And there are quite a few possible uh, uh, problems that may raise their heads here, aren't there? Because rights aren't just about residency. But they're about a whole raft of, of other stuff around education and work and social benefits and, and health care. Um, and the UK is on the record several times now as saying it's going to make a generous offer to the EU on, um, on citizens' rights. But there are quite a few sticking points, uh, particularly as I understand it, around family members. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that, that, that family members, even unborn family members of, for example, EU citizens living in, in in the UK may be entitled well, should would be entitled to come and join uh, the, the the right holder rights holder who is already in the UK and that that can go on basically you know in in perpetuity uh, and also rights around around EU or non EU spouses uh, is a particularly delicate issue uh, at, at the moment it's actually easier for an EU citizen living in Britain to bring an on a non-EU spouse to come and live with him and her uh, in in the UK uh, than it is for a British citizen uh, to do the same. There are all sorts of uh, of requirements that have to be met around income and that kind of stuff for for for, for British citizens. Um, and finally, of course, there's this question of who's going to have the jurisdiction over any disputes on, on citizens' rights. Jennifer, where do you see the main sticking points coming on this? Well, yes, I think you, I think you've highlighted some of the some of the tricky issues there, and on the on the, from the EU point of view. Their, their main response to this uh, this so-called generous offer is to ask, well, where where are the details? Mm. Because what the EU are really seeking are line by line detailed guarantees on every aspect of citizens' rights. So the ideal for the EU negotiators is that uh, is that citizens can continue to live their lives as if Brexit had never happened. So they maintain the same rights to work, to pensions to uh, to healthcare and the EU want each of these things to be guaranteed and that also takes um, uh, goes into some very tricky areas for the UK which as you you mentioned is the issue of spouses where um, spouses coming from a non-EU country would have actually greater rights to come and live in the UK than uh, than a than a British person would have the right to bring a, a non-EU a, a non-EU spouse into the UK because uh, they would have to pass a certain uh, income test. So, for example, if you're mm. a Spaniard living in the UK, you might you can bring your Argentinian husband to come and live with you. But if you're a British citizen, then then that Argentinian national would have to pass an income test. So, at the moment, it's it, there's a there is an, an anomaly that EU citizens living in the UK actually have slightly more rights than uh, than UK nationals, and that will be a very tricky issue to resolve. Da- Dan, how does how have you heard? Well, I I think that this could play very badly politically because I think what we're drifting towards especially if Britain softens its Brexit demands on other fronts and we end up having to take a lot of rules from Brussels in order to stay within the um, EU. There's a danger we will end up looking like a vassal state where British citizens have less rights than EU citizens. We have to pay money, but we don't get any say on how it's spent. We have to agree to certain rules, but we don't get to, um, to, to, to set them in any way. I mean, this... It, 
without wanting to sound like a Brexiteer, this is in danger of feeling like sort of Imperial Rome, where, where Britain ends up as this sort of second class outpost. Now, you could say that some of these things are true right now. I mean, the disparity between the um, spousal um, immigration rights exists today. But but if this is codified and written down in the divorce Article 50 um, talks, I think it really will underline just what a sort of client state we're in danger of becoming. Hmm. And what about this question of, of jurisdiction, Jennifer? The, the, I mean, the EU is completely determined, is it, that, that the European Court of Justice should, uh, should, make any, should, should rule on any disputes over whether or not these rights are being, have been guaranteed and are yes, being applied? Exactly. And that, that is a very clear red line for the EU, and they show no sign at all of backing down on it. It's quite interesting to say that not everyone um, in, the, in the EU countries shares this opinion. There was a very interesting opinion from a former ECJ judge recently, who no longer an ECJ judge but now retired, and he suggested that this was unfair for Britain, that why should a, a third country, a, sort of a foreign country from the EU's point of view, be required to continue adhering to EU law? And potentially, you know, EU law could be, or the writ of the ECJ could apply in the UK for 100 years if you think today that there are uh, small, uh, children, babies who uh, may one day want to, to go to the European Court of Justice to uh, protect their rights, maybe to pensions much later in life. So, so this is a, it's going to be a really uh, fraught question in the negotiations. It goes right to the heart of the sovereignty argument that for, that's been such a, uh, a, a big thing for the Brexiteers. And, uh, but for the, e- for the EU, they show absolutely no sign of, of backing down. So I think this will be an early test of how well the negotiations are going to go, because if there is a compromise on this, then it's, it will be promising that there will be compromises on, on other okay. areas. This is meant to be the easy one. Let's not forget. This is, <laughs> of, of the first three, this is the only one that anybody's got any confidence could be solved. Uh, the, 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 what happens after the first three is almost completely uncharted territory. And yet, as we've just outlined, this supposedly easy issue is fraught with political danger right from the start. Yeah, indeed. Well, well let's turn to some of the other dangers then. Um, having looked at, 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 at citizens' rights, Dan, um, the other main issues for the divorce talks um, will be the border in Northern Ireland, or the border between the Republic of Ireland and, and Northern Ireland, which will become a, a, a EU-UK land border, of course, once Britain leaves. Um, that uh, and and the budget. Uh, now we'll come to the budget in a minute, but or the or the 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 the, the, bill, the exit bill, as as as, uh, as Britain likes to call it, and the sort of the settlement, uh, as the EU likes to call it. So, but looking at the, the border first, um, Dan. I mean, that has, it's not just about the border, is it? It's it, it contains much bigger questions um, about about the, whether Britain wishes or not to stay in the customs union, and of course the whole question might be considerably complicated by the government, the Prime Minister's sort of newfound dependence uh, on the votes of those 10 DUP MPs at, at Westminster. How do you see that playing out? In short, I don't. I, I think <laughs> this is one of those uh, issues where I think the EU uh, is um, itself living in cloud cuckoo land if it thinks that this can be discussed separately from the um, uh, future trading relationship that it has with the UK. Because clearly these are issues that um, go away if you have some sort of customs union that looks like we've got at the moment or, or, or indeed is what we have at the moment. But are hugely fraught if the land border between Northern Ireland and the Republic is effectively the external border of the EU. The uh, Irish Republic government will be under legal obligation 
um, to police that border, to collect tariffs, to monitor um, livestock um, and, and, and make sure that British goods flowing in are adhered to European standards. All of those things will require uh, uh, customs officers. Now, you can dress it up in all sorts of talk of um, a virtual border, mm. one that's policed with number plate recognition and online verification and all these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, if that board, if, that, if those things are to mean anything and if they're going to withhold legal tests, they will have to be pulling over trucks and looking at them. And, and that will cause delays and, and, and that will um, uh, create the kind of border that um, will give rise to sectarian tension again. And as you say, the DUP creates an extra layer of difficulty because one way around that might have been to say, well, actually, why not make um, the Northern Ireland have a kind of special status so that it doesn't, so that it's semi in, semi out of the EU. And the thing is that that's an absolute red line for the DUP mm. who would never contemplate anything like that. The other, only other alternative that I've heard of from talking to people is for the Republic to have some kind of special status, for it to be somehow within the UK kind of jurisdiction and for them then there have to be special relationships going from the Republic to the rest of the EU and that's an absolute non-starter in Dublin as well because that you know they do most of their trade with the EU, why should they change their relationship when we're not prepared to change ours? So these are all things that can't be untangled until we have some sense of what the future relationship looks like. Jennifer, on that point, is do you think that's recognised uh, in Brussels and in the EU27 more, more more broadly that 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 really this question may not be one that can be resolved until one quite big chunk of the future relationship is actually agreed on? Yes, I think uh, diplomats would admit that. And it's also worth pointing out that there is actually some flexibility worked into the EU's negotiating stance, because although they, ha they have taken this very strict divorce first, then we talk about the future approach. In fact, they've also said that if there is sufficient progress on the, the free areas they want to solve, then we, the, the negotiations could quite rapidly move on to talking about the future, including trade, including customs and, uh, and, and uh, all sorts of other things. So we could even get to that point as soon as October. I think the uh, summit of EU leaders at the end of October could be a very important moment to assess whether the UK is making progress. And I think it's not necessary for the UK to to, to sort of finalise every single point when it comes mm. to, say, the, the border question or the bill, but to show that there's some willingness there. I think possibly on the citizens' rights issue, then they'll be looking for much more precise guarantees. But there might be some of those other issues that can be fudged um, and can be deemed a sufficient progress, allowing the UK to move on. Okay. This could be an important stepping stone. I mean, I suppose, yes, to, to sort of be glass half full about it, one can imagine a scenario where both sides can commit to having an open and, and, and soft border with Ireland and then they go and how are we going to get there and then somebody says well we have to have some kind of customs arrangement and you can see it becoming the beginnings of that then that segueing into the next conversation so perhaps some early uh, uh, sort of broad brush airy fairy declaration of goodwill sort of, sort of agreement, will be to, agreement to disagree for the time well yes yeah. an agreement to kind of pursue yeah. a soft border yeah. might be enough to then at least start the important conversation no. No. okay well let's look at let's look briefly at the third and possibly the most problematic of all uh uh, of the issues that, that are supposed to be dealt with in the Article 50 uh, part of the talks, uh, namely uh, the exit bill. Um, Jennifer, there's, you, there's some news on that this morning, is there? Well, we hear um, that the 
the European Commission is now revising down its estimates from the, of the exit bill. This is a report in the FT of a meeting that took place this week uh, about the, uh, the bill. Um, although there have been estimates ranging from a sort of 60 to 100 billion, it now seems that could be scaled back somewhere between sort of more like 40 billion net um, for the UK to pay. Because it really depends on what you what you include in this bill, and the Commission actually have always taken a more conservative approach than EU member states. It was actually uh, member states, countries such as France and Germany, that were really pressing for the UK to be to have to pay its share of the the EU's seven-year budget. Now that budget was negotiated by David Cameron back in 2013, and it runs for seven years, expiring at the end of 2020. Which means that if the UK uh, leaves the EU in in 2019, that's a big black hole in the EU budget. It's a problem for all the other member states. It's a problem if then they have to find farm subsidies and research funds that they never they never thought they'd have to find. So, so I mean, the, the reason why the budget is so complicated is because it sort of it ricochets right into the, how the EU, um, the EU's own interests, and uh, and how they will divide the money, and that's always a source of, of tension. But then again, the EU is does have a long experience in, in arguing about money and, and coming to solutions and being creative. So I think I think the the budget is workable, but it depends on. Maybe it depends on a different tone from the UK. I think officials here were shocked when, when Theresa May suggested that the UK might not owe anything at all. So I think if, if the UK comes in with, um, with this line next week, then that's going to go down very badly and the talks will get off to a bad start. How yeah. about nothing? Yes. <laughs> how, about, how about zero? What about yeah. that? Yeah. 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 I mean, Dan, I mean, can we expect a turn? I mean, I mean, David Davis in, in the past has has said very volubly that, that these kind of amount, the sort of particularly the hundred billion uh, amount that was being floated uh, for a while was an absurd and, and ridiculous sum. And, and Britain would simply leave the negotiating table if it was if that was what was demanded. Um, wh- where are we now on, on that? I think paradoxically, the election result may have helped us a little bit because, first of all, it removes this absurd notion that Britain could just sort of walk away. Um, Theresa May asked for a mandate for that strategy and, and, and received a resounding no. If there was one clear message from the electorate is that, that they did not want her to say go in there with a gun to her head, threatening to pull the trigger. And, the, and it also gives her a get out because one can imagine a situation, say they compromise at 20 billion, say they spread it out over 10 years, say it's 2 billion a year. It's okay. It's not a great Daily Mail headline, but in the big <laughs> scheme of things, it's really not worth um, uh, Britain getting too het up about. And Theresa May can simply shrug her shoulders and say, well, look, this is the price of you not giving me my mandate. You know, I would have secured a better no. deal if I had the backing of the country, but I you did, didn't give this it is the me best and, we can yeah. do. And so so it, rationally, it's not worth worrying about compared to the economic pain that's at risk if we screw this up. And politically, she now has a, a sort of get-out clause. I mean, it's never going to look good, but I, I, I suppose there's, you know, there's a little bit more hope that we might get there this week. Okay, um, Jennifer, just in terms of the timing, when do you think we might... When the, I mean, it, it, clearly it's the, it's the Commission, or it's the, it's, it's, it's the EU that um, have, have sort of given itself the, the, uh, the authority to say, well, okay, now we have now made sufficient progress on the Article 50 issues uh, in order to be able to start looking at the shape of the future relationship. Does the EU have a time frame in mind for when ideally uh, that moment might come? They think uh, they will assess sufficient progress in in October if if things are going well. 
Uh, so we'll really have to see how the talks progress over the summer. Another moment to watch mm. out for will actually be as soon as the end of next week uh, when Theresa May comes to Brussels for one of the regular EU summits. And that will be her first encounter with EU leaders since her disastrous election results. And that mm. Brexit will, will certainly be discussed at that meeting, although the EU will try and make sure that it doesn't dominate because the, 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 the talks with, between Barnier and Davis will be going on separately. So we'll wait until October until we, we get a sense of whether the UK will be allowed to move forward for trade talks. It could be delayed until December, at the end of the year, if things are not going well. But, um, but EU negotiators are still hopeful that things could move quite rapidly on the first phase, and that would allow the UK to get into trade talks and all sorts of other areas, foreign policy, police cooperation. The great irony of all this, of course, is that we were always told that things wouldn't get real until the autumn because of the European elections, particularly the German election, would have to be held at first before we could get real. And I think what's quite possible now is that it may not be able to get real until the next British election is held, which will probably also be in the autumn, in my view, <laughs> because none of the legislation that Britain needs to pass to make Brexit work can be done with even with the DUP um, formal coalition. The, the, the majority is just too slender. So at some point, they're going to need to go back to the country and get a proper mandate. And that is no way going to be able to happen before the autumn. Uh, uh, and actually, perhaps the timings are now aligned. Perhaps that suits everybody. This gets real after the autumn. Okay, well, let's look a little bit beyond the autumn now. And I know there's a little bit kind of crystal crystal ball gazing for obvious reasons. Um, But let's just look at how the the UK's overall Brexit strategy, what what kind of a Brexit it it might end up with, uh, may have been affected by this remarkable, unexpected uh, election result that we got. Um, Jennifer, first... Um, how has the fact that the government no longer has a majority, how has that gone down in Brussels? How, I mean, and what's the view on, on how the talks could be affected going forward? Uh, and also, I suppose, I mean, how, how much of a laughing stock is Britain in Brussels at the moment? Well, a state of flux is the, the phrase that keeps, to, that keeps cropping up again and again. I mean, people were really... It stunned, I think, at the the election results because I think many had assumed, uh, as the polls did, that uh, the opinion polls that Theresa May would come back with a big mandate, and they were. And although nobody was jumping for joy at her hard Brexit, they they knew what it was and they knew what she wanted. Whereas now that's all been thrown into confusion. And from the EU point of view, the UK simply doesn't know what it wants. And they are concerned that they will start negotiating, and then halfway through the their negotiating partner will change uh, and potentially come back with a new mandate and that will put the talks into confusion. They will, they will do their best to stick to their timetable and their objectives, but there's, there's huge uncertainty and, and, uh, and, and damage to, to the sort of UK government reputation in, in Europe, I think, and, uh, and those uh, the sort of mocking newspaper headlines and, and cartoons have been, have been widely shared here, of course, and it does give you a flavour that you know, Theresa May is seen as a, as a, a weak and, and a really humiliated uh, leader who's not in a position to drive forward her vision of Brexit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what might I mean, just imagine for us? I mean, imagine that 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 um, uh, that, that Dan's scenario is right, that, and that the UK is heading for a, a second election uh, in the autumn, and suddenly, then you know, the government change, changes. Uh, w- what would be the EU's? I mean, is there is there scope 
uh, on the EU side in that case? I mean, would they stick to the two year to the sort of March? 2019 deadline could things be extended what what might happen from the from the eu point of view i don't see any prospect of significantly extending the two-year deadline maybe if the uk is lucky there will be a a few weeks to sort of eke it out at the end but uh, the eu is very keen to wrap these talks up in time mainly because they have the uh, the european parliament elections probably may june 2019 and for them that is the ultimate deadline the uk has to be out by then otherwise things get very messy and also they don't want these negotiations to drag on forever the eu wants to show that it's moving on with other projects with defense with eurozone reform it doesn't want to be talking about this sort of UK Brexit psychodrama for, for years and years. But, but, but added to that, I think it's worth pointing out that there are only so many models that exist for the UK to interact with the, the EU. So that could be a Norway-style single market model. It could be, could be something more distant, like a, a trade agreement based on a Canada model or a Ukraine model. These are some of the, the ideas being banded about. But there aren't an infinite number of models. So I think even if there, if there, if there was a new government in the autumn, yes, that, was, that could cause a, a temporary delay in the talks. But ultimately, there are only so many options for the UK and they will have to choose something. I mean, if it comes... If push comes to shove, um, Dan, I mean, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Do you, do you think if, if this confusion uh, on, the, on the UK side persists, might it be worth the EU simply coming to Britain and saying, OK, well, here are your four or five possible uh, outcomes. Which one are you going to go for? Presenting a menu yeah. rather rather than a la carte. Yes, I think that perhaps that might sort of help concentrate minds a little bit here. I, I have, I'm also in a state of flux on this. I began the week feeling relatively upbeat about the prospect for some um, movement towards a softer Brexit. We saw an outbreak of common sense from some of the grown-ups in the Tory party, lots of grandees coming forward and demanding um, that business interests are taken more closely into account. Mm. Philip Hammond, the, the Chancellor, most significantly... The big problem, though, is the more you start, once you concede that less Brexit is better than more Brexit, you start to say, well, how about no Brexit? I mean, it, 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 it collapse, many of these models collapse down when you start looking at them. So, for example, the, the Norway model, whilst I think is a much better option than, than what we're proposing at the moment and, and would allow us to remain members of the single market at possibly tolerable political cost and certainly allow us to maintain the illusion of having sort of um, adhered to the referendum result. At the end of the day, it looks like a much shabby version of what we have it, mm. it's basically sort of eu membership um light it's 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 uh, well eu membership light makes it sound like a sort of you know nice diet thing but it's actually <laughs> it's sort of a, it's a kind of poor man's eu membership and and i think that the trouble right now is you have a bunch of you know diehards clinging to this notion of 100% Brexit and the minute they concede an inch the whole thing starts to unravel and so I think Jennifer's term psychodrama is is probably the, be- the best way of thinking about this this is really about talking some people down from the ledge uh, and I'm not I'm still not completely convinced that we can do that without some sort of change of government so you know we'll have to wait and see. It, it is quite a big I mean it's a it's a it's a lot to ask of a politician to fundamentally change their mind on something they've campaigned for in for in 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 yeah. some cases for sort of 20 years or, or they're in Theresa May's case about yeah. 20 minutes I mean, <laughs> yes. don't forget she was a remainer through the referendum I mean that, that's the, that's the other I mean that's the other cause for hope here is that the vast majority uh, of the government the cabinet still um, 
possibly a majority of backbench MPs, I don't know, maybe 50-50, are still Remainers, you know, or were Remainers before the referendum. And and probably the same sort of split on the Labour side. It, it, it's the leadership that is the issue. And the Labour leadership mm-hmm. is also an issue here because they sense a bigger prize. For them, Brexit is, is a sort of a, a sideshow to their idea of political revolution. Well, let, um, let's, let's just lastly yeah, look at Labour briefly. Um, because, I mean, I mean, it's precisely their ambiguity on the whole question of their sort of deliberate ambiguity on the question of Brexit that may have helped them in the election, is it not? Yes, and I think they would be... Um, um they will be thinking it's foolhardy to mess with that. It's a winning formula to fudge Brexit because it allowed them to basically shift the election onto other grounds, ones that they were stronger on, um, and to um, ha- allow the protest vote to sort of play out against Theresa May. And you can see why, if their aim is to get Jeremy Corbyn into number 10, um, it may make sense to continue to do that. Um, I, and there may be many reasons why Jeremy Corbyn at number 10 will make good sense for all sorts of other reasons. The diff- difficulty is that a prime minister's last for five years. Brexit's for life. And mm. I, 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 there is an opportunity right now to force some common sense onto the government. Were the opposition to be minded to do so? And I fear they won't. OK, Jennifer, anything to add to that? This idea of a sort of a menu of options that Brussels might, might present, is that a, is that a runner? I think it's. Uh, I, mean, I think there are only a limited number of options, and but really, it will be for the UK to decide what it really wants. Mm. I, I think the Brussels will wait for the UK to say we want this kind of Brexit, and then they will work out how to go about delivering a delivering that but i think for for eu diplomats here the big question for them is is uh, theresa may or whoever succeeds her if there is another election is that person still going to be driven by the interests of the conservative party by holding the conservative party together because the sense that people have in brussels is that, that this whole question from from david cameron onwards has been about internal uh, tory party unity and they felt that even theresa may was prioritizing that rather than thinking about what kind of brexit that she really wanted and what was uh, even best for the country. So, so I think, I mean, that's the, that's the ultimate question for them. You know, is the government going to decide what it wants or, or is it still going to be in mm. the grip of the sort of Brexit fever okay. of, um, and the, uh, the very hard Brexit uh, uh, line of the Tory party? I'd love to see them do that. I mean, it's a very provocative thing to do. But as an EU citizen, I would like my EU leaders to ask um, David Davis when he turns up on Monday, just what is your authority? Who do you think you are? Mm. You don't form a government. You don't have a majority in Parliament. How dare you come here and profess to talk for a country that's deeply divided on issues, where lots of our citizens are, you know, violently opposed to what you're suggesting? Um, come back when you have a mandate, please, Mr. Davis. That's what I'd like to see them say. That would certainly put the cat among the pigeons. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think probably that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thanks to Jennifer in Brussels, Jennifer Rankin, Dan Roberts here in the studio for joining us in the meantime please subscribe and review on all your favorite podcatchers uh join the discussion on twitter it's certainly going to be an interesting few weeks months and years to come if you want to get in touch with us about brexit stuff it's brexit podcast that's all one word brexit podcast at theguardian.com if you'd like to review the pod and be in with the chance of featuring in our podcast weekly column then the email for that is podcasts at theguardian.com Till next time then, uh, I'm John Henley. The producer is Carrie Stewart. Thank you for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.